Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Work in Intellectual History. My name is Selma Sondan and I am a master's student of intellectual history at the University of St. Andrews. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Francis Nethercott, who is a researcher at the School of History uh, at the University of St. Andrews. Uh, Francis' work in intellectual history focuses primarily on Russian intellectual and cultural history uh, in the 18th century up until the collapse of the Soviet Union and its immediate aftermath. And um, today we will be starting by talking about Francis' recently published book entitled Writing History in Late Imperial Russia, Scholarship and the Literary Canon. So welcome, Francis, and thank you so much for being with me today. My pleasure. Um, just briefly as an introduction, could you tell us what your book is about and what your main argument will be or was? <laughs> well, I have been interested in uh, what I call historical culture, Russian historical culture, for quite some time, and it's actually uh, the topic of my uh, special subject with undergraduate students. So it was a, something I, I wanted to work on, but one of the problems with writing about, let's say, historiography, is the approach that you can take, because you can rehearse these chronologies and say, this person wrote this, this person wrote that, etc. So uh, for a long time, I was kind of looking for a hook. And finally, I went with, uh, is actually a kind of commonplace about Russian culture, that it is very literary centered. And that literary centeredness really comes from the fact that uh, you're dealing with a, a country that is, has a long tradition of censorship and so on. So literature and, and uh, literary criticism and so on were the main platforms for thought. Um, and there's another thing that one needs to say about Russian culture in general, is that there has always been a kind of suspicion of institutional institutionalized forms of knowledge. So the university is, well, one person described, he described it as a barometer of, of social change in Russia. So it could either be uh, a form of resistance from the state, but also an accomplice of the state. And that has led in the intelligentsia tradition more broadly to kind of establish a distinction between two types of knowledge. So one is kind of pedestrian knowledge that you get in the university and one is more of a creative type of knowledge. And that you find usually through a relationship, a privileged relationship with a teacher, a guide and so forth. And so I kind of took those ideas and looked at historians in the university who were trained professionals to see whether these distinctions worked for them. Um, and in actual fact, they, they did, they did. Uh, so that was sort of one thing that led me down this path. And then of course, that then provided a, an, an, a pathway for this love of the literary tradition. All right, because the men of letters in these salon circles and so on, 
uh, they fostered this culture of literature. But historians, even though they're professional, they still uh, played an important role in salon culture and so on. And so they have that same kind of culture. Um, so that became the hook. And I began to look at the way historians work with the world of fiction and literary traditions, uh, co-opted as part of an evidence-based historical inquiry. So that, uh, do you follow what I'm saying? It was this broad-based um, literary-centered culture of Russia. Russian historians were no exception to this rule and they would source literary evidence in their work as, as, as historians. Uh, and in the eyes of many of their pupils, they became renowned as these master historians, these master scholars. Uh, so they're, and that kind of feeds into this suspicion that Russians often have of the university. So for a historian to be, to have this accolade of being a master, so some historians were regarded as the Pushkin of history, Another was called the Tolstoy of history. I mean, that was kind of the highest accolade, but it's sort of going beyond institutionalized knowledge. So that was the the um, the, the hook that I used in working on this. And then it was organized in terms of generations. So I had a cluster of historians who were working in the early 19th century, after the reforms, and then into the early Soviet period. Um, so that's that's what I did. All right, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, you just uh, touched another question that I was interested in, in how um, the way you conducted your research um, translated into the way you structured your book. As I understood, um, you just said you structured it in different generations. Um, was that also the way that you conducted your research or was that more of a, was it a step-by-step -step process? Uh, no, that was dependent on what uh, books I had access to and when I could go to Russia. So uh, I kind of had mapped it out in my head and then it was a question of when I was working in Moscow uh, that I could piece the bits together. So, um, as I said, it took quite a while to kind of work out the structure, but once I had it, then it was easier, you know, to fill in the bits as I went along. Yeah. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. Um, it seems like this is quite the interesting project, especially working in Moscow and in Russia. Um, could you tell us during the research project, is there anything that you find particularly surprising or interesting when you conducted this research that also your your readers would um, uh, could be expected to find in your in your book? Yeah, there was one aspect that did surprise me. Um, one of the figures I work on, uh, his name is Ivan Greaves, um, is actually of Scottish descent, Greaves. Um, and he was a medievalist working at the end of the 19th century. And, uh, well, actually, before he, he became professor of medieval uh, history, uh, his um, doctoral dissertation was on the late Roman period. And he spent some time in the north of Italy. And he was, well, it was, it was 
he was working on social economic history um, and he visited the ruins of the villa of the poet Horace. And uh, what was interesting about his research for the time was that he was introducing um, uh, tangible traces of the past. So he's looking at archaeology, topography, and then also reading Horace's poetry in order to reconstruct life in the villa in the age of Horace. And um, that uh, for me was, was actually quite surprising because it seemed to be an incidental precursor of the things that the Yanal School did in the 1920s and 30s. So I'm thinking of the first generation of people like um, Mark Bloch. Um, and then Gurus himself uh, started introducing this methodology into his seminars uh, during the first decade of the 20th century. Um, and then after that, uh, because he was, you know, uh, uh, he was obviously not a Bolshevik, um, and like many, became sort of persona non grata in the early 1920s. But in the early 1920s, when you have the first commissar for education was Lunacharsky, he was actually quite a light touch person as uh, a Bolshevik. And he was very much a believer in um, giving uh, subsidies, quite generous subsidies to people to come up with revolutionary programs of education. Um, and Graves and his students briefly benefited from this situation. And um, although they, you know, they weren't allowed to do, uh, I mean, history was off the list um, for quite some time before the Bolsheviks finally introduced, you know, historical materialism, etc. But there was that kind of early, early period where they could be quite experimental. And he and his uh, students set up this institute called the Excursion Institute. Um, and it was taking this idea of going to places, visiting places to reconstruct aspects of the past. All right, so, um, uh, and uh, a feature of this work were so-called literary sites. So this is where literature and history come back together again. Um, so it was, I don't know, is visiting various monuments and uh, trying to sort of reconstruct the world and bringing students to these places so they could kind of see history with their own eyes. That was the, the kind of idea. Um, and yes, I think that was uh, surprising. Uh, and then it did actually have a, a legacy in the Soviet period. Um, Graves and his students were, of course, you know, victims of the, the Stalinist regime. But the idea of excursions and these literary excursions became a major feature of, of Soviet, Soviet culture. So, you know, you do a tour of St. Petersburg, it's to see Pushkin, for example. Uh, but that same trope of literary centeredness continues. So that was, was something that kind of surprised me, that the types of questions that Graves was asking uh, in the 1890s were not a million miles away from the types of questions that the early annals as disruptors uh, were engaging in. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you. 
it sounds like by introducing these personalities, you had a you had access um, to your topic and really contributed to the study of Russian intellectual history. Um, what repercussions do you think does your research and in particular this book have for the field of intellectual history in the future? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <Not much>. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it's always my hope that actually um, it would be well received in Russia. Um, I think you know Russians really appreciate when they're uh, their experiences and their history is, is written about by outsiders um, with a kind of sympathetic view. Um, so that would be my wish, I suppose. Yeah. That, um, yeah, that seems very valid. Um, so the readers um, who you are trying to reach, um, first of all, who are they? Um, do you have do you have a clear idea of that, or and what do you think they will be taking away from it? Is it the Russian uh, audience, or also uh, students here, or researchers here? Uh, again, uh, it's it's that is actually quite difficult for me to to answer. Um, uh, I mean, I I know that some of my students have have read the book, but. Um, in a way, I'm afraid I'm one of these people that when I've, I've finished a book, um, I don't cling on to it. It's about moving on to do something else. So um, the book now has its own, has a life of its own. In fact, when I look at it, I no longer identify with it as author. I don't know if you've experienced that. If you write an essay and then you put it to one side and then you come back to read it and you think, gosh, who wrote that? Uh, that's the experience I have, <laughs> you know, and very often if I've written something, I don't look at it for years. Um, you know, it's a kind of, it's a, a process of detachment. Well, that's a fair point. Um, <laughs> so then let us go on to what you are currently uh, working on. Um, could you tell us briefly the content of your current research? and um, what led you to conduct this research, particularly the links to the volume and the book we just talked about? When I was working on that book, I came across references to Thomas Carlyle um, by historians. And uh, so I kind of bookmarked it. I mean, I did have other things that I wanted to, to work on, but I, that was one of the things I thought, I've got to check this. And so it was, I think it was in the summer of 2019, when I was last in Moscow before COVID, that I just sat down and did a, a search, a library search uh, on Carlisle. Um, and first of all, it's quite difficult to find anything. I was working with a librarian and then suddenly, I don't know, she pressed some button and bingo, just loads and loads of things came up. And I thought, well, I need to look at this. Um, so. There were, um, I mean, there are many approaches you can take. There are loads of translations. Some of the early translations of Carlyle were, were in his lifetime. Um, so that was one kind of avenue. Um, uh, I started looking at the types of questions that Russians were interested in when they were reading him, who was reading him. 
Um, so it kind of became a standard, you know, reception of the ideas of. But then I started looking more at Carlyle and discovered that he was actually quite passionate about Russia. Um, and that, that aspect of his work, because of course there's a load of stuff written about Carlyle, uh, has not really been looked at. Um, and so um, one part of the book is going to be about Carlyle's idea of Russia. Um, it's about his relationships, his personal encounters with Russians, of which he had a lot, um, because he, I mean, by the 1840s, he was very famous and his house in Chelsea, you know, everybody visited it. So there are quite a lot of well-known Russian figures, uh, emigres, uh, critics of the regime, but also ambassadors, um, these Baltic Germans, uh, with whom Carlyle had contact. Um, and then in his own politics, you know, he was very sort of anti-Turk and pro-Russia. And of course, Russia, as it has today, then in the Victorian age, had a very bad press, British press. Um, you know, it was the fearful bear and, and all those things. But Carlyle was actually quite a staunch defender of an idea of Russia which for many Russians didn't correspond to Russia, but nevertheless, they liked him. So um, again, it's a question of structuring uh, this, this text, but one part of it has to be about Carlyle's interest in Russia. Um, and then um, I'm thinking of just selecting a number of key themes. Money will be one. So his views on capitalism, which of course really resonated with um, Russian thinkers uh, from the 1870s on, um, socialist thinkers, because they were all concerned about the social implications of capitalism, you know, increasing poverty and things like that. Um, and certainly Carlyle's position for them uh, was a kind of useful interface to think about modernization and the impact the social and, uh, let's say, moral implications of capitalism. Um, uh, so money, his view of man, I'm thinking. Um, Carlyle's greatest success in Russia, I mean, Russians were very critical of him, but everybody was because he's such a controversial thinker and kind of thrived on this controversy. Um, but a beguiling figure at the same time, I mean, he's but uh, that said, his greatest success in Russia was at the beginning of the 20th century. And that's when you see a slew of work on him, uh, translations of his works, um, and actually some kind of creative engagement with him. So the early 90, 20th century is marked by, you know, the modern, the symbolism and so on. So his, his novel, Sartre Rosatis had a huge success in Russia uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. So you can see it's a big field, but it's about, again, trying to identify which aspects um, I, I want to work on. Um, uh, Victorians are actually quite conscious of uh, certain linkages between Carlyle and Russians. There's another thing I discovered, which is quite peculiar. Um, uh, there were attempts to compare him with 
the great Russian writer Tolstoy. Hmm. Yeah, as social moralists and for their sort of peculiar takes on, on the Bible and so on. And it's interesting that these, you have Carlyle, Ruskin and Tolstoy as these three kind of figureheads, these sort of um, spokespeople for social, moral, for social morality. Um, and that the fact that the, the British were picking up on that as well is, I think, quite interesting. Um, and that must somehow feed into this broader context of um, growing British interest in Russian culture and so on. Got politics on one side, which is one story, but the world of Russian art and thought was of interest to certain a growing number of Victorians. And by outlining this linkages between Thomas Carlyle and Russia, um, what are you hoping to contribute or maybe even change in the field of historical studies? That would, above all, I think, be a contribution to um, uh, the Carlyle studies um, more than anything. That's, I mean, uh, the Carlyle world is, um, you know, it's a huge field. Um, and, you know, there have been studies on Carlyle and Germany and things like that, but, but not really on Russia. Um, so that would be the sort of modest ambition, um, really, to to contribute um, to Carlyle's studies by bringing in this, this Russian component. I believe uh, that is a great point, and it's also a great point to finish our interview. Um, I want to thank you again for taking the time today. Um, it was really interesting to talk about your book, Writing History in Late Imperial Russia, and also about your current research on Thomas Carlyle and Russia. So thanks for speaking with me today, and until next time. Thank you. Bye-bye.